Well, let's turn our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 7. Would you stand with me one more time and we'll read the Scriptures together. Romans 7, 1 through 6, again this morning, we're going to look at the powerful effects of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's read this together in unison. Will you join me? Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to Him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, roused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Your power at work in Christ. You put Him on the cross. It was Your will to crush Him. You rose Him from the dead. And we are thankful for the power that is at work in us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. We pray that You would Give us understanding of this glorious text this morning as we consider the power of Christ as we are in union with Him to release us from the power of the law over our lives. Convict us. Encourage us. May we rest in the power of Christ this morning. Father, turn our eyes away from ourselves. Turn our eyes away from our sin and our, and our failures to the perfections of Christ. Thank You that in Christ, we can now bear fruit in lives lived to Your glory. Teach us these things, we pray, through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Thank You for Your inspired sufficient, authoritative, inerrant Word this morning that we have before us. Thank You for the resurrection of Your Son. We pray in His name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. As you know, this year we have devoted our focus of study in Passion Week on the powerful effects of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we've been looking at Romans chapter 6, 1-4. through. 14, we looked at that on Good Friday evening. And then this morning, this Resurrection Sunday morning, I want us to look together at Romans 7, 1 through 6. And in these texts, the, the Apostle Paul has declared to believers in Jesus two glorious principles that we all need to know 
and understand and consider well. Because they are reality. They are what has happened to us in Christ. You know, so many believers, uh, and, and all of us are yet still learning of the effects of the gospel in our lives, but so many believers, true believers, trusting in Christ, yet they really don't know much of what has happened to them when they were converted. And that's what Paul is doing in this letter. He is informing believers about what has happened to them in Christ when they came to the gospel and were saved. And so, the principle that we learned on Good Friday that Paul declared to us is that when we are in Christ, we have died to sin. Meaning, not meaning that we don't sin, but we have died to the slavery of sin in our lives. Died to the dominion of sin. And we then have been raised to newness of life. We have the power of Christ's resurrection at work in us changing our affections, our thoughts, our desires, our abilities to be able with a heart of love to actually give ourselves for the glory of God. Now, I told you last uh, on, on Good Friday that there are three powers of the old life that Paul is touching on and explaining to us that Christ has released us from these three powers. Do you remember what they are? The power of sin, the power of death, and the power of the law. Well, this morning, as we look at Romans 7, 1 through 6, Paul is going to explain to us how our union with Christ releases us from the power of the law. This is such a glorious thing. And so the, the main idea that we're going to look at this morning is this if you are a true Christian, then through Christ, you have died to the law and have been raised to bear fruit for God. Now, maybe you look at that phrase and you're like, what does that mean? Why is that wonderful to know that I have died to the law? Do you know what it means that in Christ you have died to the law and have been raised to bear fruit for God? Well, Lord willing, as we work through this text this morning, we will know and understand and be able to consider it. Paul unfolds this principle of having died to the law and raised to bear fruit for God. He unfolds this principle to us in four parts. And you can see that in your outline that I've provided for you in the bulletin, and it's going to be our outline this morning. First of all, the principle introduced. That's verse 1. The principle introduced. Secondly, the principle illustrated. And that's the section here that we read through that talks about this woman married to this man and how the law de demands that they stay together until one has died. So the principle illustrated verses 2 and 3. Then the principle explained in verse 4. He states the principle and gives some elaboration on it. And then the final part that Paul works through here is he applies the principle. And, and you begin to see its effect very specifically in the life of you and I as people of Christ. The principle applied, verses 5 and 6. So let's work through this text together this morning and rejoice in the powerful effects of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in our behalf. Number one, the principle introduced. Paul, right off the bat, shows us whom he's talking to. He says, do you not know, brothers? He's still talking to believers. And this is a, a wonderful point to stress. And we'll see why in just a moment. But there's probably both Jewish believers and Gentile believers in his audience. He's writing to the church in Rome. 
He's speaking to them the glorious facets of the gospel of salvation. In fact, believers need to grow in their understanding of the gospel and continue to speak the gospel to one another as well. Sometimes, people who have grown up in church or profess to be Christians sort of think of the gospel as information they needed for something in the past. They needed to know something about Christ's death on the cross in order for them to escape the judgment of hell and and have everlasting life, and then it's sort of left behind. That was something that happened to them in the past, and now they just live their life as they always did, and they try to be moral and nice, and, and hopefully they have a pleasant life, and they don't understand that the Gospel is our life. That we continue to proclaim the Gospel to one another, even as believers. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, listen to what Paul says as he introduces his letter to the Roman church. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. This is Romans 1.8. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may know that I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Why would Paul want to come to this church? For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far we have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Wait, these are believers, the church of Rome, and yet Paul is straining at the bit and he says, I want to come and give you a spiritual gift. And what's that gift? I want to come preach the gospel to you. I want to show you the glories of the gospel. And so the book of Romans is like Paul turning the dime into the gospel and he says, Look at this facet. Look at this facet. Look at this one. And how all of the glories of the Gospel work in the heart of the believer to confirm them in Christ and strengthen them to walk in newness of life. And so Paul then says, I am not ashamed of the Gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so it's important for us to speak the Gospel to one another. More specifically in this verse, he also tells us that he is speaking to those who know the law. He says it, I'm speaking to those who know the law. Nearly everyone in Paul's audience had had experience with the law. Especially the Jewish believers, right? Because their lives had been structured around the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments at least, and even also probably some civil and ceremonial laws up to that point. He's speaking about the law here in terms of common knowledge. He's asking a question that introduces a common principle about the workings of the law in the world. This is very familiar to anyone who has lived for any length of time in human civilization. And here's the principle that captures the really heart of this text and he begins to unfold it and then apply it to the work of the Gospel. He says, you know that the law is binding on a person only as long 
as He lives. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Paul is stating that the requirements, what the law demands of you to do, the restrictions, what the law forbids you to do, the rewards for having obeyed the requirements and the punishments for having violated these requirements and restrictions, all of this about the law is binding on every person as long as the person is alive. But only as long as the person is alive. I know this sounds all obvious, but Paul is going somewhere with this. He wants you to really think about what he's saying about the law. The law is binding on living people and on living people only. The law is not binding on dead people. Death releases people from the binding power of the law. Doesn't that make sense? In fact, as I was studying this, I came across someone who said that in another part of the world, I think maybe in, in uh, in Great Britain years ago, the newspaper might write that so-and-so, you know, John Smith has been justified. And what that meant is that he was hung outside of town. Right? He, he, the law has been fulfilled for him and no longer binding on him. Death releases a person from the binding power of the law. And Paul, having introduced to our minds this principle, he's going to illustrate that principle with an example from everyday life. But his ultimate goal in this section is to show us how this principle can be applied and explained in the power of the Gospel to release believers in Jesus from the terrifying tyranny of the law over us. But before we look at that, the rest of Paul's teaching on this principle, I want us to slow down for a minute and just take a better look at the law itself. What is the law? that Paul is talking about here. That's so binding on every person. What is the law? Well, the law is God's law, right? The law is God's law. The law is, like I said earlier, the requirements, what we must do, uh, the restrictions, what we're forbidden to do, and, and, and all of that is to reflect the nature of God Himself. Remember this, it's, it's not that God sat down one day in eternity and started saying, let me think of laws by which the people that I'm going to create are going to live, and he writes them out. No, the law is a reflection of the character of God. The law is what it is because God is who He is. And God gave law to human beings because we have been made in His image in order to reflect His glory. So that makes perfect sense. If the law is a reflection of God's glory, and we're His image bearers made in His likeness, then these laws are to guide how we live as His image bearers and show us how we can reflect His glory in the world. We could say that the first expression of God's law was given to mankind even in the Garden of Eden when God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. Or when God told Adam to nurture and protect the garden and never to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was kind of the first expression of God's law. Here are the guidelines, Adam and Eve, by which you can reflect my glory 
and be my image bearers and walk in my likeness. God also gave His law then to mankind. And it was built into every into the very creation of mankind, into every human being, into every image bearer of God. In fact, Romans 2 plays that out because it shows us that the law of God was written on our hearts and our consciences testify to us in our hearts, telling us whether what we are doing is keeping or breaking God's law. So built into every image bearer, built into each one of us, is the law of God right there in our hearts. And our consciences testified to that. And God gave His law to mankind through Israel in one of its clearest forms when He wrote with His finger upon the tablet, right? The Ten Commandments that He gave to Moses and He gave to His people. The law of Moses, uh, the law of God through Moses, of course, is called the Ten Commandments. And those ten laws are God's laws. They're a summary of the law of God. There again, they're a summary of the reflection of His holy character written on the heart of every human being. And that is why some form of these laws has made its way into the governing structures of nearly every human civilization. Have you ever wondered, why do we all govern ourselves in basically the same way all over the world? Whether we have received, whether, we, whether the people are aware of the Scriptures or Moses or Israel or not, the Ten Commandments have made their way everywhere. Why? They're written on the heart of man. What are the Ten Commandments? And keep in mind that each one of these Ten Commandments has a a, a prohibition and also a requirement. Something that must be done and something that is forbidden. For example, the first one, you will not worship any other god. Could be said positively, right? You must worship only Yahweh, our God. You will not worship Yahweh by making an image, commandment two. Worship Yahweh in spirit. Third, you will not take Yahweh's name in vain. Positively stated, honor Yahweh. You will set aside a special day to rest and remember Yahweh. You will honor your parents, commandment five. You will not murder, commandment six. You will protect and value human life. You will not be adulterous. Commandment 7, you will be faithful in your relationships, positively stated. Commandment 7, you will not steal. Or commandment 8, you will not steal. Be diligent and generous. Instead, you will not lie. Commandment 9, tell the truth. You will not covet. Commandment 10, instead you will desire blessing for your neighbor. And those 10 commandments can be summarized even further, can't they? What? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now these Ten Commandments have been written on the heart of human beings since the creation because we're created in God's image to reflect His glory. These are binding on the human as long as they live. These laws are binding on a person as long as they live. So, How have human beings responded to these laws? How well have we done? Even though we know them, even though the governance of society have been built on them, what is our response to the law? We break it, don't we? We can't keep them. In fact, it says in Romans 8 that those who walk in the flesh, that's everyone before they're in Christ, we cannot please God. 
says it so plainly. We cannot please God. We have all sinned, Romans 3 tells us. That is what it means to break God's law. In fact, human beings naturally love to break the law. We'll see this more clearly later on. Why? Because all of us, since Adam's fall, we by nature and by choice live rejecting the purpose for our, our, our existence. And we make up our own purposes for life. God made us to know Him and to love Him and to enjoy Him and to obey Him and to reflect His glory. And yet, what do we do? We've rejected Him. We love ourselves more than anything else. We've ruled ourselves. We've sought to worship ourselves and and selfishly enjoy other created things. So we have rejected and broken God's law by our nature and by our choices. God designed the law to be a blessing and enjoy to us. But God also designed the law to be a protection and a warning to us. God promised us from the very beginning that if a person keeps his law perfectly in mind and in body, that that person will earn and be rewarded with eternal life. But anyone who breaks his law in mind or body That person will earn and be punished with death and ultimately eternal death. Endless, which is endless separation from the love of God and eternal suffering under the wrath of God. That is what John 3.36 says. The wrath of God remains on the sinner. And so the requirements and the restrictions and the rewards and punishments of the law are binding on us as long as we live. What the law says to do and not to do are binding on every living person. What the law requires for its violation is binding on every living person. That's the law. And how do people everywhere respond to these truths concerning the law? This is how we must live. This is what we must forbid to do. This is what happens if the laws are broken. How do people respond to that? Some people self-righteously try to keep the law. Have you noticed? I, I'm a, you go up to someone and say, are you a good person? You think you're a good person? They say, yeah, I think I'm a good person. Why? Well, I try to do this, and I try to do that. And, I try... and we, we kind of reform the law to make it something that we think we can accomplish, and God's impressed with us. Some people self-righteously try to keep the law. Some people rebelliously try to suppress the law, and maybe all of us do both of these things. Self-righteously try to keep it, but rebelliously try to suppress it. When you begin to walk through the law with someone, and maybe even in your own heart to see what God requires, and to find that you've failed, and there's no way that you can keep that law, and yet God demands it of us, and we look at that and it, in the sinful state that we're born in, it causes us to feel anger. We don't want to be told that this is how we must live. We don't want to be shown our failure. We don't want anyone to have authority over us like this and then punish us eternally for sinning against His holiness. And to self-righteously try to keep the law and to rebelliously try to suppress the law are both a futile effort 
James 2 and verse 10 tells us that even one breakage of the law means that we have failed in every point. James 2.10 And yet, the law is still binding on a person as long as he lives. Binding. It's there. The weight over us. And because we are by nature and choice lawbreakers, and it is impossible for us to keep the law and earn eternal life by it, the role of the law in our lives has changed in a sense. Not because the law has become evil. The law is not evil. The law is a good thing. It's, it's a reflection of God's glory. But we are evil. As God's image bearers, we have become evil by law, or, or by the nature that we, we are, and by our law-breaking. In fact, think of it this way. And you'll hear these three concepts repeated as we walk through this text together. Because of our sinfulness, the law affects us in three ways. One, it incites more sinfulness from us. When you see the law say, don't do that in your sinful state, you know what, the law, you know what we want to do? Just what the law says not to do. Secondly, it instills a sense of shame and despair in us. Because we know we've broken God's law. We know we've broken it. And we are guilty. Whether, whether we cover that or try to compensate for it, we are still guilty. The law is binding on us. And it gives us a sense of despair then to ever please God and earn eternal life. Because we can't. We can't. And when, when, when someone who is just hearing these things for the first time comes to that understanding you know it's starting to make sense. And you tell them, well, you're not good. They say, yeah, I guess I'm, I've broken the law. Then, then none of us can be good enough to earn eternal life. And so then, we're all damned. And you're like, exactly. That's what the law does. It, it gives us a sense of shame and despair. And then thirdly, it inflicts a sense of terror. Because if it's just judgment. Just like God says, the soul that sins shall die. Just like He told Adam. The law is a weight on us now. And it is binding on us as long as we live. It incites more sinfulness. It instills a sense of shame and despair. It inflicts a sense of terror because of its judgments. And every human being who is thoughtful and honest about reality will live from day to day under the crushing weight of the law of God. And that's why sinful human beings don't want to hear the law spoken to them. That's why people don't want the Ten Commandments around anymore. Doesn't that make sense? It reminds them of all of this that they're trying to suppress. That's why people don't want to be told they've broken the law. And why they don't want to be told they can't keep the law. There's nothing that so angers people than to be told that they have broken God's law, are guilty, are weak, and are worthy of God's eternal wrath. But nonetheless, it's true. The law is binding on an individual as long as he lives. This is the principle that Paul is introducing to us in this first verse. And it underwrites everything else that is going to say to us in verses 2-6. to six. The law is binding on a person as long as he lives, but only as long as he lives. And the only event that can release a person from the binding power of the law is what? Death. All right, now, Paul goes into the illustration. 
There's his presentation of the principle. Number two, verses two and three, the principle illustrated. Let me read it again for you. It's a very simple illustration. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Here's the simple illustration that proves Paul's principle. The subject of the illustration is whom? A woman. A married woman. And she's married to this man. And God's law has a binding power on her. What is that binding power? That Paul is is writing through this illustration. She must stay married to her husband as long as he lives. The verse 2 says, Bound by law to her husband while he lives. That is what the law requires. That requirement is binding on her. The only way that the law will no longer be binding upon her regarding its demand to stay married to her husband is if what happens? Her husband dies. Right? If her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Then and only then is she free from the binding power of the law. Then and only then is she released from the law regarding marriage. And which commandment is that? Commandment 7. You will not commit adultery. You will be faithful to your relationship. Alright, now verse 3 continues the illustration. Now the binding power of the law is stated negatively in verse 3 with this illustration. If that same woman goes and lives with another man, while her husband is still alive, she would be doing exactly what the law restricts her from doing. And the binding power of the law would then make its judgment upon her. It would call her an adulteress. She will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. And she must receive the just punishments from the hand of God and man. And the only way the law concerning marriage would no longer be binding to her, the only way she would not be called an adulteress if she goes and marries after another man is if what happens? If her husband dies, then she's free from the law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. That's Paul's illustration, the principle that says the law is binding on a person as long as he lives but only as long as he lives. The only event that can release a person from the binding power of the law is death. Okay, now, verse 4. Paul connects this principle and the illustration to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number three in your outline. The principle explained, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also, have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Ah, now you have a breath of fresh air. 
The law is crushing and crushing and crushing. And then you see this illustration. You feel sorry for this woman because she's probably stuck with this guy who's beating her every day of his life. And then, oh, that's what I'm like under the tyranny of the law. But, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Paul is pulling over the principle into the realm of salvation now. Paul is pulling over his illustration into the realm of salvation. What Paul is doing is speaking the good news of the Gospel to the sinner believer. The sinner believer. I'm making one person out of that because believers, we still do sin, yes? We do. We won't when we're glorified, but right now we're sinner believers. Like Martin Luther said, we're at the same time sinners and saints in Christ. But yet, he's speaking to the one who is still feeling the unbearable weight of the binding power of the law over his or her life. That person has experienced the inciting power of the law in his rebellion. Come on, do just what? What the law forbids. And he's feeling the shame and despair of the instilling power of the law on his sinfulness and weakness. And the terrorizing power of the law on his guilt. And Paul is taking that sinner believer's head in his hands as it were, and he's pointing their eyes to look away from the old dead husband to the new husband that they are now married to. What do you mean by that? Well, look what Paul says. Likewise. Likewise. Just like the woman in verses 2 and 3. He's putting the believer in the place of that woman in the illustration. Likewise, you, my brothers. He's speaking to believers in Jesus still. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now, to fully understand Paul's intent, and to get the full impact of his usage of the illustration in verse 2, you need to remember the two realms of human existence that we talked about on Friday night. And And Paul explains so clearly at the end of Romans 5, if you weren't there, on Friday night with us, I hope that this will be sufficient. This is the two realms of existence that Paul explains and unfolds at the end of Romans 5. It's who we were in Adam first. This is before salvation, right? Before conversion. We as a human race are in this sort of life, existence, as a result of his sin. This realm of existence is called the old man. The old self. The old nature. And in in that place of life before salvation, we were slaves to sin. We loved sin. We could basically pick the variety of sin that we wanted, and that's everything we do. And we can't break away from that. We don't want to please God, and we can't. We're slaves to sin. And and as we're slaves to sin, we know then the consequences of sin, and so we're dominated by death. In fact, in Hebrews it says that in that way of life under Adam, we live afraid of death. 
because we have no security about what is on the other side of that door of death. And we're lorded over by the law. The law incites us to more sin. It inflicts upon us the, the terror of punishment. It instills in us a sense of guilt and shame. And we're terrorized by condemnation. That's who we were. That's, that's the old man. In fact, we could say it this way. That's the old life that you were married to before Christ. And specifically, the power of the law is what you knew as your spouse before Christ. Then, after conversion or at conversion, we, we were joined to Christ. This is who we are in Christ. It's exactly the opposite. We live life as in Christ as a result of His obedience. It's, we're a new man, new self, new nature. We're now slaves of righteousness. We, we don't have to give ourselves to sin. We can give ourselves to obedience to God. And our desires are now that way. Our hearts are changed. Our desires are changed. And we're beneficiaries of life, not because we've earned it by keeping the law, but because Christ earned it for us. By His obedient life, we're ruled by grace. We have the power of the resurrection at work in us. We stand in grace that enables us to walk as children of God. And we rejoice in justification. We're right with God through Christ. Well, how, how is it that someone moves from this realm over to this realm? Remember this? It's by grace where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We're, we're dead to one realm and alive to another through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This life died with Christ, was buried in His tomb, will never Come back again. That life and everything in it is dead and gone. And now we are raised to this life in Christ. Paul is telling believers now in Romans 7, your old husband has died. He's telling you. The old life under Adam to which you were married is now dead and buried. And the binding power of the law that was crushing you in that old marriage is forever lifted. It's lifted. You're dead to the binding power of the law because your old life under Adam is now dead and buried. You're no longer married to that old life under Adam. You are no longer under the crushing, binding power of the law. The law or the believer in Christ no need no longer incite more sin from you like it used to. And it doesn't anymore. It need no longer beat you down with guilt and shame and despair for your failure to keep your law and your weakness and your sin like it used to. It need not. It no longer need threaten you with the judgment of God. The judgment of death. Eternal divine wrath for your endless violations like it used to. That old existence to which you were married, it's dead. It's dead. Just like the illustration that Paul gives. The old dominance and binding power of the law over you is dead and you are dead to it. You see how Paul says that? You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. You might say, well Paul, how can that be? How can I just be released from the power of the law? 
like this, like you're saying. I'm still alive. Just like you said, the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. Yes, that's right. But Paul said only as long as a person lives, right? Remember? Only. And there has been a death. That's the point. There has been a death that has released you from that old marriage to life under Adam. There has been a death that has released you from the binding power of the law. And that death was what? The death of Christ. And Paul says that through the body of Christ, through the real crucifixion that slaughtered the body of Christ, through the violent death of the physical body of Christ, you died the law and all of its binding, dominating power over you. Do you see it in the verse? Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. That's why the death of Christ is everything to us. Did you realize the effect, the powerful effect of the law on you? You died to the law and all of its binding power over you. You've been released from it. Its dominion over you was cut. Because the moment you were converted, the moment you trusted in Christ for salvation from sin and the wrath of God against you, you were united to Christ through the Holy Spirit. And Christ's death became your death. It became your death of the old life under Adam and dead to all of the crushing dominion of the law that that life included. This is life to us. Maybe you ask the question then, how could the death of Christ and my union with Christ in His death release me from the binding tyranny of the law? How does it do that? Literally, practically. Well, here's what happened. Through your union with Jesus Christ, the sinlessness, listen, the sinlessness of the human life, the body of Christ, has been declared yours. Do you understand that? The sinlessness of Christ, His obedience is now yours by being in union with Him through faith. And now, in God's eyes, you are no longer a lawbreaker. You are a law keeper like Christ was, even though you are still a sinner. And your sinfulness was declared to be Christ's and your sinfulness was placed upon the human body of Christ. And in God's eyes, Christ became the lawbreaker that you are. He became the sinner that you are. And He even, the Bible says, became the sin that you committed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 And because of that, your punishment then. The, the requirement of the law to... Bring death to every lawbreaker. That punishment that the dominating law demands of you also became Christ's. And God's wrath for your sin was poured out upon Him in His human body on the cross from the hand of God the Father. And so Christ as your substitute totally, listen, totally and eternally 
satisfied the binding demands of the law for you in your place. Do you grasp that? That is salvation. And now because of your union with Christ and His death, you're totally free from the binding power of the law. Christ, being truly God and truly man, satisfied the dominating demands of the law for you. God has declared you guilt-free, sinless and righteous, even though you're still a sinner. God has declared you punishment-free, no eternal death, only eternal life. And all that happened through the body of Christ and His death on the cross and through your union with Christ. You see, likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. Isn't that precious truth? It's lifted. Remember the old song? Free from the law. Oh, happy condition. Jesus has bled and there is remission. Cursed by the law. Bruised by the fall. Christ has redeemed us once for all. There on the cross, your burden upbearing. Thorns on His brow, your Savior is wearing. Never again, your sin need appall. You have been pardoned once and for all. Now we are free. There's no condemnation. Jesus provides a perfect salvation. Come unto Me. Oh, hear His sweet call. Come, and He saves us once for all. Children of God. Oh, glorious calling. Surely His grace will keep us from falling, passing from death to life at His call. Blessed salvation once for all. Once for all. Oh, sinner, receive it. Once for all. Oh, doubter, believe it. Cling to the cross, the burden will fall. Christ has redeemed us once for all. But guess what? That's not all. There's more. That's Paul says in verse 4. Why? Has God done this through Christ? Released us from the law and its tyranny so that you may belong to another. There's the other half of the illustration, right? To Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Just like the woman in verse 2. A death has freed you to belong to another husband. Your old life under Adam died and was buried. But also, your new life with Christ began. You were raised from the dead through your union with Christ and His resurrection. That's what Paul says in the rest of verse 4. You died with Christ so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead. Now you belong to Christ. You will belong to Christ forever. And He isn't like your old husband. He is a wonderful husband, as described elsewhere in Paul's writings, right? Ephesians 6. The church is the bride of Christ. He protects you from the dominating demands of the law against you. He provides for you His own righteousness, both in your position and now in your practice in this new life. He shares with you His own Holy Spirit so that the power of His resurrected life is living in you. He has made you His bride, a new creation in Him through His resurrection and your union with Him. And that resurrection, now you have a new heart. That's what happens. This is the new covenant, right? You have a new heart that beats with Christ's and longs to do the will of God. You have new desires that that love God's law and hate your sin. You're 
different totally being married to this new husband. You have new abilities to obey God's law and keep them even after failures. You get up and go again. You can now live in obedience to God's law without being crushed by the weight of guilt and self-pity for your sin. You can now live in love toward God without fearing His wrath against your sin. You can now even confess your sin openly because you know it's already been forgiven. You know that your guilt and punishment are gone. You can now look at God's law and love it while at the same time hate your ongoing struggles. And you know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And you rejoice in God. And you rejoice in being at the same time a sinner and a saint. And now, like it says at the end of verse 4, you can bear fruit for God. In other words, you can live for the glory of God. You can now live in Christ and become who He made you to be as His image bearer. Godliness can now be produced in your life. All of this is now a reality for you, Christian. Do you realize that? Because you died to the law through the death of Christ's body and were raised with Christ in newness of life to belong to Him. Finally, this morning, Paul applies this principle even more specifically to our experience. Number four, the principle applied, verses five and six. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That little word for, that signals some more explanation, more detail. Here's some application coming. While we were living in the flesh, what does that mean? Living in the flesh. What is that? Again, that refers to the old life under Adam. Our old existence before conversion under the tyranny of sin and death and the law. In that old life, what was our relationship to the law like? Well, not very good. Look what it says. Then, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members. Sinful passions. Strong desires for sin. Do you remember those? And maybe you feel some still now. But before you were in Christ, when you were in Adam, boy, those, those passions had their way every day of your life. Any and many different expressions of sin. And in fact, it says there, notice, they were aroused by the law. Isn't that interesting? The law which God designed to teach us how to live in His likeness, In Adam, it called out our sin. Called out our desires for more sinfulness because we are sinful by nature. Paul tells us this in Romans 7, verse 7 and 8. Notice, just look a few verses down. He says, what shall we say? That the law is sin? Because the law arouses my sinful desires? Does that mean it's sinful? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lives, sin lies dead. Let me illustrate it for you in maybe a little more to home example. Well, how about your kids, right? We, li- we live with wonderful children, and they are. You put a note on the television that says, do not turn on the television while I'm gone. What do they want to do? Turn on the television while you're gone. If, if you hadn't put that note up, they probably wouldn't even have thought of it. But just because it's there, it arouses the desire to do what just is forbidden. And it's the same for us before we were converted and united to Christ. Our sinful passions that were aroused by the law were at work in our members. What's that? Our members. Well, that's a word that Paul uses in Romans 6 and 7 to refer to our human bodies, our members. The physical place where our sin is facilitated and those sinful passions were working. They were at work. Working. Operating putting forth power and effort upon our members to sin, hour by hour, day by day, temptation after temptation, impulse after impulse. And we all know the powerful force of those sinful passions that can push us to sin, don't we? Powerful in the heart. And they were powerfully at work in our lives before we converted. In fact, they were irresistible to us. Before we were converted, listen, we lived to fulfill those passions. Don't we? What your body wants, that's what you lived for. What the pride of your heart wants, that's what you lived for. And the only reason we would deny some passions for sin was to fulfill some other selfish passion for sin. Sometimes the only reason we would curb one expression of sin was because we didn't want to have other people think ill of us, which is another selfish desire of pride, right? And we lived our lives violating the law of God and loving every minute of it. And what did that produce for us? What does Paul say? That life under the tyranny of the law For sinners, does what? It bears fruit for death. Death is what the binding power of the law demands against sinners for their sin. And that is what was being produced by our sinful passions. All the while we were living under the dominion of the law. Death is the natural fruit. The law says so. The law is over this. Death is the natural fruit, the natural outcome, the produce of the life given to sinful passions. Not just physical death, mind you, right? But spiritual, eternal death. We were, think of it this way, we were filling up the barns of our own punishment with the fruit of death under the wrath of God for the day of judgment. But now, is that the way it is for us now in Christ? No. Absolutely not. Now that we're united to Christ, it's no longer our sinful passions and it's fruit that defines our existence. The powerful effects of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ come to bear. But now, we are released from the law. We've been converted. We've been, by faith, put in union with Christ in His death and burial and resurrection. We've been released from the law. 
we have died to that which held us captive. The law doesn't incite us to sin anymore. It doesn't instill shame and despair. It doesn't inflict terror because of its punishment. We've been released from it. Christ fulfilled the demands of the law for us in our place. And now being raised with Christ, His resurrection to new life, we have an entirely new relationship to the law. Look what it says. So that, that death happened, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Not in the oldness of the written code. In other words, having been raised to life in Christ, we don't look at the law bitterly anymore. We don't look at it painfully and fearfully and shamefully and try to keep it letter by letter, line by line, hating every moment of it and falling on, failing at it on every level and dreading the consequences because the terrible weight of God's wrath against our law-breaking is hanging over our heads, ready to drop on us at any moment. That's not how it is for us anymore in Christ. At least it's not if you understand these things. Now, having been raised to newness of life, we serve God in love to the Spirit in the new way. It's, it's what's already written on our hearts. We love His law, like David the psalmist said. And we now have the Holy Spirit within us to develop and direct all those desires so that we can live for the glory of God with joy. And when we sin and fail to keep God's law, we hate it. Yes, but we confess it for what it is, knowing we're forgiven. No more guilt. No more shame. No more punishment. No more fear. We are kept. We are loved because we are joined with Christ, our new husband. And He earned life for us. And He absorbed the death for us. These are powerful effects on us from the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they are effectual for who? For everyone who believes. The moment that person is trusting in Christ alone for salvation from their sin and the wrath of God. Immediately, the moment they're converted. Released forever. Life is ahead for them. Eternal life. If you're a Christian then, through Christ, you have died to the law. You have died to the law and have been raised to bear fruit for God. Now in closing this morning, I want to think very specifically about uh, some kinds of people that, that, that this text speaks to powerfully. First, this text speaks to the unbeliever. First of all, this text speaks to the sin-loving unbeliever. Are you a sin-loving unbeliever? What does this text say to you? It warns you. Because you are under the binding power of the law still. Because you're not in Christ. And if you go on to live your life fulfilling the sinful passions of your life and your heart in Adam, like we talked about, what will be the fruit of that? Death. And you better believe that the law will not bend. Because God's law is a reflection of the holiness and the perfections of God who is, who is sinless, righteous, and holy. 
So this, this text would call you to run to Christ away from your sin. Get rid of the old husband through the death of Christ and be joined to Christ and live in newness of life. This, this text also speaks to self-righteous unbelievers, believers who think, or unbelievers who think that because they are somehow joined to a church or have, have walked through some cer- certain rituals and ceremonies that are religious or, or, or have tried to do some good things in a life, that they're going to make it with God. Impossible. The binding power of the law demands absolute perfection of the law on every point. You can't do it that way. You cannot earn eternal life. Run to Christ instead who earned eternal life for you and find endless joy in Him. Some people think they can have Christ, trust in Christ, and then add certain rules and guidelines and rituals and religions to Christ and that you have to have both. That won't work either. The Apostle Paul says plainly in Galatians 2 and 5 that if you try to add something to Christ, and don't just trust in Him alone. You try to add something, the cross will become purposeless for you. You will fall from grace and Christ will not save you because He must receive all the glory for releasing you from the power of the law. So turn to Christ. Let go of the old husband. And through Christ's death, embrace Him who kept the law and fulfilled it for you. This text is a powerful message for believers as well. And that's who Paul wrote it to, remember? And he wants believers to stop looking back at the old husband and remembering him and look to Christ who you now are married to. Think about the performing believer. What's the performing believer? The believer who keeps thinking that they, they are right with God and maintain a right standing with God and maintain God's affections for them and maintain other people's affections before them by what they do and do and do and do and do. Their identity is based on what they do. They even have in their own mind this sense of who they want to be. And when they fail to be that, they despair or become angry, or overwhelmed. And Paul would look at that believer and say, don't look to your own performance to make you right with God or make God happy with you. Look to Christ, your new husband. He provided all of it for you. He fulfilled the law for you. Doubting believers. Did believers ever doubt that they are safe with God? Of course they do. We do. We struggle with doubt. We wonder, did I pray the right prayer? Did I, did I repent well enough? Did I know what I needed to know when I trusted Christ? Did, and we look at ourselves and we constantly measure ourselves up against this sense of, well, that's the perfect convert. And then we doubt. Even when we sin, when sin overwhelms us and crushes us sometimes, we hate it, yes, and we struggle against it, but it feels overwhelming and we wonder, am I even saved? And Paul says, look at your new husband. He has kept the law for you. You are righteous in him. He has removed all of your punishment when he died on the cross. Look at your your new husband and rest in him alone. 
Don't rest in yourself. You'll never measure up. Rest in your new husband. He has done it all for you. Hiding believers. What's a hiding believer? A believer that is afraid to talk about their own sin or be confronted by other believers for their sin. What do they do? They get angry. Why? Because they can't be told that they don't measure up. Why? Because they've forgotten that the only way they can measure up is in Christ. Because of their new husband. When you know, when you're looking at your husband and know that your identity is in him and not yourself and your performance, it gives you a freedom to welcome correction from others. To say, okay, tell me my sin because it's already forgiven. I want to grow to become who God wants me to be. I'm okay with that because I have Christ. He's my new husband. This talks to discouraged believers doesn't it? Who feel overwhelmed with their sin because the battle goes on and on. It won't. The battle will not last forever because you're married to Christ and He will raise you someday with a new body that is sinless. Oh, and this encourages growing believers. It helps us to know and give glory to God because all of our desire to want to do God's law, every time we succeed in obedience, we look to our new husband and we say, it's all because of Him. He does it in me, through me, for me. I mean, that's what the Scriptures are filled with that concept that it is God who works in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's not us. It's not us. It's Him. If you are a true Christian, then through Christ, you have died to the law and have been raised to bear fruit for God. Oh, the glorious, powerful effects of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can you rejoice in these? Yes, you can if you're a believer. Let's stand together and pray and, and give thanks to our God who worked this in us. Father, thank You. Thank You for killing who we used to be. Thank You for killing the life we used to be married to under the dominion of the law. And You killed it through the body of Christ. Thank You now for raising us to newness of life. Father, I pray that the clarity of Paul's text here would be received by an unbeliever and by a believer. All who would hear this today or even online, let them see that the law is lifted in terms of earning life with God and avoiding punishment, it can be lifted through Christ. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for dying, being buried, and rising again to give this grace to us. We, we praise You and we give You thanks in Your name. Amen. Let's sing together.